So you can't take your best case and your worst case, add it together, divide it by two, and all of a sudden call that the likely case. It's just not reality. Welcome to the Innovation Metrics Podcast, where we bring you the latest on innovation management. We provide insights on how to measure innovation, innovation accounting, and managing the uncertain process of developing new, sustainable, and profitable business models. You can find links to the main topics covered in this episode and information about the guests and hosts in the show notes, or go to our blog on innovationmetrics.co. Your host is Aaliyah Islet. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Peter Le Piane, who helps organizations transform how they validate and launch products and services. With a background in startups, incubators, venture capital, and professional coaching, Peter has spent the last two and a half decades refining his consulting toolbox, serving a diverse range of clients from mid-sized companies to large multinational corporations in various industries. In my view, some of Peter's articles and publications are significant contributions to innovation management, and we might get to a few of them today. Also, at times, I have the pleasure of working with Peter and can vouch for his knowledge, skills, and character. This is part two of our conversation. We best understand how, you know, how the humans operate and how we how we behave and you know it's it's as unpredictable as products are because go figure products succeed or fail based on human behavior well <clears throat> changes succeed or fail in organizations based on human behavior and you know all the way from and i i i, I did this in a uh, in a fragrance company uh over in uh, in europe in switzerland um, I was working with uh, someone who I'd done lean startup work with in the past that's in our community. And um, he brought me in as a uh, as a change specialist. So what was happening in, in this particular instance was there was a piece of AI that was coming into a, a sales process. So we're talking about people who have been selling fragrances in industrial settings for decades. And all of a sudden, you're telling them that they're not concierging their, their client through this process, that there's a piece of AI that's going to do it, that's going to help them. And then they're just going to give the recommendation that the AI give them, gave them to the client. These are people who are used to smelling things and saying, oh, this is the image that you want to, these are, it's a very artistic way of, of selling. It's pretty cool. I didn't understand it at first, but, but I learned a lot about it. It's a really, really interesting thing. So what, so great. We've got a piece of AI and yes, it was being lean startup, you know, kind of very iteratively introduced into the sales force, but that's not good enough. We also, alongside that, introduced really lean startup experiments, but with the change itself. So not just iterations of the product, but also yeah. ways based on the culture of the organization um, to incent people or to convince people that the status quo was not where they wanted to stay, that behaving with this tool was going to work out better for them at the end of the day. 
inside of their incentive systems. You know, there was talk about, well, do we want to introduce an experiment that changes the incentive system? Well, we all know how to build that hypothesis, right? Like if we change this thing in the incentive system, then this new behavior is going to happen. We'll know it's happened when this, you know, quantifiable thing of behavior starts to show up in the world. We can measure these things. We can count these things, uh, you know, within whatever time frame that we're running the experiment. It's the exact same thing. And, I, you know, as I say, like, I think as lean startup practitioners, we, we, it's right there for the taking. The change management side of this is there for the taking. And too often I see on the initiatives that I'm in, I see it, uh, uh you know, not maliciously forgotten, but, but forgotten. Beautiful. Yeah. Lean change management. Check it out. I mean, it sounds like you know what it is already, but to the listeners, check it out. Lean change management. Check if you're a lean startup practitioner. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Jason Little, you're welcome. Jason Little, shout out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you got to where you are? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, by background, I'm a software engineer. So there is a, uh, a school here in Canada called the University of Waterloo, and it's got a, a really really good reputation for computer science. God knows how I got into the program, but I did. And it was hard as hell. And I finished it. And um, I, uh, there's a whole story to how I got into it, but I won't bore you with those details. Well, maybe I will. What the hell? Um, you up for a story? Yeah, I'm up for Look how I'm leaning back. My body language is all like... Yeah, you're like, hit me. Um, so I always thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, well, I thought it was going to be a baseball player. Let's forget about that. If you asked me when I was nine years old, I would, I would have said professional baseball player. Right. Um, so that, that didn't happen. Um, obviously. So, um, what I, so I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to university of Sorry. Waterloo. I was, uh, I was in science to start with. I think it was in biology or chemistry. I can't remember. I hated it. Uh, but I wanted to be a doctor, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna grip my teeth and 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 get myself through this. So, in my school, what we did is we would do four months school, four months work, four months school, four months work. It was a co-op program, so that's how I paid my way through school. Is I worked every four out of every eight months. So um, I was like, okay, great, I'm gonna get a job doing something that's gonna point me in the direction of being a doctor. And, uh, and then off to the races I go. <clears throat> so my father was going to help me to get a job in a field that was close to medicine because he knew a lot of doctors. Well, he dropped the ball. So I was two weeks into a work term and I wasn't making any money. And this was the only way I was going to pay for school. So my mother, uh, had a friend who was pretty high up at IBM and he got me a job at IBM. So here I am. Uh, oh, and I guess the other part of the story is in science at Waterloo, you have to take a computer programming course because Waterloo is all about computer programming. So I had to take a programming course in Fortran, which for those of you who understood, know computer languages, it's kind of an old science-based computer language. It's not fun, not fun to program in Fortran. So I, I almost failed. I got a 50 on the nose. So I walk into this interview at IBM. And it's for all crazy things, Fortran compiler testing. So I'm going to be writing code in Fortran, but I almost just failed the course. So this guy, clearly, this was a, a, um, a formality, this interview, I got the job on the connection and I show up on day one 
And there's a bunch of geeky Waterloo people around me who grew up, you know, reprogramming their Ataris. Um, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So here I am at this job and I'm literally in tears at the end of every day because I can't do anything. Like I'm useless at my job. So I'm reading manuals day after day after day after day. And I wanted to, at the time, get into kinesiology because I was kind of closer to sports. So I'm like, this is cool. I like sports. I'm going to go into kinesiology. And then all of a sudden, one day when I'm on the job, pouring through these stupid manuals and trying to get my job done, bang, it clicks. And I'm like, whoa, I think I can do this. So I started being able to do it and I started loving it. And then I decided I want to get into computer science. But the thing is, Waterloo is a pretty difficult program to get into. And they're like, you're a loser. So you almost failed out of science. We're not going to let you into computer science. So I said, okay, fine. You should know I'm a pretty competitive guy. So you don't ever want to tell me I can't do something because I'm probably going to prove you wrong. Or at least I'm going to try my best to do it. So what I did is I, you know, I, I didn't go out once that term in university. I studied every single night, every single weekend. I took all of their computer science courses and I got like 95% across the board in all of them. I came back into the computer science department and I said, boom, here you go. What do you think about that? And they said, oh, well, why don't you come into our program? So that's how I got into computer science of all bizarre things. I used to hate the stuff. Now, I can't write a line of code now if my life depended on it because I haven't touched the stuff in like 15, 20 years. But I can read it. I can figure it out still. And I have a vague idea as to, you know, how software engineering works, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's left me behind. So incredibly long story to say that I started out in computer science. So now <clears throat> because I have computer science background, um, I, uh, I tried to start. <laughs> Well, no, I started it. I didn't try to start. It just doesn't exist to this day. I started a uh, what was at the time in and around the late 90s called a web development development shop. So we were building interactive websites is what it was called at the time with e-commerce built in. So my company, there was only like five of us, we were building these sites. So at the time, I was writing in something called Cold Fusion, which for those of you who are software developers, You'll know that that doesn't exist anymore, Cold Fusion. Uh, so I wrote, without knowing it, I developed Airbnb before it existed, and I developed Shopify before it existed. And here's, here's I'll, I'll just tell you what these things did. So there was a, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing at the time, so I didn't know that I was building these things. So <clears throat> there was a owner-direct rental company in Whistler, BC, so ski resort, I was living in Vancouver at the time, and I built an engine that allowed owners to post pictures, describe their property, uh, have a calendar that you could book into, and pay for the place. Hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, because that was one of them. And then I built a um, uh, for an Ultimate Frisbee uh, clothing manufacturer, because I was a big Ultimate Frisbee player at the time. Um, what, what we did or what, what I did, I was a main engineer was, uh, built a, an inventory engine that provided real time updates on an e-commerce site so that you could see whether something was in stock or not. It dealt with the whole kind of inventory backend integrated into their, um, into their backend systems. Hmm. Sounds familiar. 
So, uh, oops, I didn't know that I had kind of developed things that would turn into big startups, but you know, I kind of, I kind of did. So that led me to really be intrigued by startup, by business models, but all, you know, alongside that, I was in the corporate world. So I was doing consulting work because when I was in university and doing my work terms, that's what I was doing. I was a consultant, um, all the while writing software code, but I was a consultant. So I started out, uh, in 1996 is when I moved to Vancouver out to the West Coast. So I was two years at a university. I was on my own. So I was, I was not an employee anymore. And I haven't been an employee of anybody since 1996. So, uh, you know, on my own doing sales work, you know, eating what I kill, I like to say, uh, to, to make ends meet just like you do. So, uh, it's been a, it's been a long time since someone has paid me a salary. So I was in the corporate world, but always kind of had this pull into the startup world, which kind of came in and out of my life a couple of times. So the first was when I was writing, you know, writing Airbnb and didn't know it and writing Shopify and didn't know it. And then I started getting into the startup scene right when mobile computing was, was getting, was getting big. So it was still in the world of like flip phones and we were starting to write code, uh, for flip phones. And <clears throat> so I started getting exposure to the Vancouver startup ecosystem. And then, uh, I moved to Toronto. So moved, moved back this way. And I started to, uh, well, I was back into the corporate world again. So doing transformation stuff, started out doing more agile transformation work and then moved into innovation transformation work, like, like we've been doing for the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years now. So agile transformation before that, innovation transformation after that, but all the while, uh, a pretty heavy dose of, of startup in that. I was doing mentorship in startup incubators. I used to do lean startup machine. If you remember when that used to exist. Yeah. yeah. So I used to, I was an organizer in Toronto for lean startup machine. I was a mentor for, for several iterations of it. Um, and loved it. I mean, what, what a cool weekend. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I volunteered for a venture capital firm that was trying to raise. So, you know, we had an investment thesis, saw lots of, mm -hmm. lots of investor or sorry, lots of startup pitches, um, and really got a, a really inside view of what venture capital is all about. So that was, that was a good education. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and also have a startup on, on the side. So this side of the desk thing that has been running kind of, alongside my startup experience or, or my innovation corporate innovation experience for the last whatever 10 12 years that was probably the precursor to amazon then yeah right no so that's estimated so that's something that we've talked about yeah i wish silently suffering from the stories you just taught me by the way and uh, i know I right yeah I to, at least i, I can to... smile you don't look like you're smiling but i'm smiling um so uh, Dan Toma, who you know in, in our mm. community and myself, have a tool called Estimatic. So we've got, you know, I've got we've got our own little kind of startup operating on the side. And, you know, we go through our own. It's very interesting having two lean startup practitioners in a startup together, uh, because you would think that we run everything by the book, but we don't. 
um, because it's a shoemaker's children thing, right? Like it's, right. it's like, well, I do this all day long for my clients. The last thing I want to do is do this for me. Yeah. So nobody does that work at the end of the day, which is crazy, but that's just it's, what, you it's know, beautiful what, what, that you uh, say that. Cause I think it's that it's just, you're back to that human, you know, in the earlier in the, or in the other part of the podcast, um, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's just so hard. No, without a doubt, right? It's it's definitely really hard work, which is again why I, I you know I empathize so strongly <clears throat> with the human behavior challenge of this because I have a hard time doing it for myself. So you know, I, I th it's it's a huge change the mindset, the behavior. It's a big deal to 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 operate in this way. Uh, and if it was easy, I'd be doing it myself, and I don't do it myself as frequently as I should. So, uh, but estimatic. So that's, that's something that's kind of run alongside, um, my startup journey. And as you very well know, it's a, it's a Monte Carlo tool. So it's a way to, um, to take a financial model. So basically take, you know, take your standard business model. Well, the way that this all started is I was advising startups and, um, well, here's another story. If you're okay with me telling yet another one. Yeah. Yeah. So I would work with startups and the startups I tended to work with, single founder, early stage, um, and usually people who were older, you know, not 20 years old, who could eat ramen noodles and survive in their parents' basement. And it didn't really matter how many, you know, the runway was pretty long. These were people who were married, who had mortgages, who couldn't, whose runways were not that long. Otherwise they'd be either divorced or wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have a house to live in anymore or, or both. So when I'd get down to the business model, they'd be okay. I'd get through boxes of the lean canvas and I'd get down to revenue and cost. And I do, you know, back of the napkin stuff, just like the literature would tell you to do. And they would freak out on me and they'd be like, I can't bet my life on back of the napkin. I need to know more than that. And that's where I started doing research into, because I've got a math degree with along with the computer science, because that's how University of Waterloo works. They give you a math degree when you get a computer little, science degree. Little which means, side note, I, you know, Peter also yeah, got a math degree. Too much math. This is computer science. <laughs> yeah, too pretty, much math, too much, math. too much useless math, but... Right. As it turns out, there were two things that 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 I wish I had paid much more attention to, and that was statistics and probability. Um, and that's really what this came back to was how can we take something so uncertain in this world of of innovation, in this world of creating something new, coming back to that definition, you know, anything that's new that is got, you know, who knows who's who's gonna want it at the end of the day large, large, large degree of uncertainty that there are those in the venture capital world, because I know because I was in it, who will say it's impossible, can't quantify a single thing. The only way that you can do this is to make a bunch of bets. And at the end of the day, the numbers are the numbers and you can't do anything about it. I'm not one of those people. You aren't either, I would imagine. We believe that you can validate things and you can spend little amounts of money early and you can learn a lot and you can avoid, you can avoid even, you know, getting things going to the end, which some venture capitalists don't do that. They just spray bomb their money and that's that. <clears throat> so back to the lean canvas. Um, uh, so revenue cost box, back of the napkin. Okay, well, how can I create, how can I de-risk this for these people? 
So that's really where Monte Carlo came into effect. That's really the, or into the equation. That's where, um, you know, I, I, I taught them about, well, what's the outcome that you're trying to get to at the end of the day? Well, it's, you know, uh, um, it, it's, it's user growth, it's revenue, it's return on investment, whatever it is, it's profit and loss. Um, so who cares what it is? Profit and loss equals, let's come up with an equation. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of variables in those, in that equation that are uncertain. Well, there's a way to model that with something called Monte Carlo, as you very well know. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it allows you to see throughout time how, how your uncertainties kind of travel through time. Does it look like a hockey stick? I mean, the problem is when I was looking at all these investor or sorry, startup pitches, when I was in the, the, the VC firm, you know, you've got a hockey stick and in year two, it's at a point. Well, that's a lie. There's no way that you know in year two that that's going to be at that point. So why are you even showing it to me? It doesn't really make any sense at all. Don't show it to me. At least have some error bars on it, something that indicates that you don't know for sure. But none of these presentations would do that. So, <clears throat> you know, this is where estimatic Monte Carlo specifically as a method uh, really comes into play because it helps you to really accurately depict what the world is. And that is, you can't as, you know, I don't need to convince you of this, you can't predict the future at a point. The only way to predict the future, and it's always been this way, at the risk of, of kind of, you know, sounding like Yogi Berra, the future ain't, ain't, as, ain't, ain't as certain as it used to be. Um, uh, so yeah, like predicting the future has never been able to be done at a point. It's a lie. The only way you can predict the future is to say, is to give a range with a probability of reality occurring in that range in the future, because you don't know, you don't know. And look, if you've got a crystal ball, then let's see it. But unless you've got one and unless it works, you cannot give me a prediction of the future at a point. It's a lie. That's just all there is to it. That was a very long way of giving you my background, weaving in and out of all sorts of different things. Yeah, no, cool. Cool. Yeah, I just, uh, for the listeners, I just cut Peter off slightly with a silly joke there. So sorry for the interrupting the flow. I just can't help myself sometimes, but we've cut it out. Yeah, it's and thank, thank God for that. Excuse me. Thank God for that. I, I need to be cut off. You need to be cut Sometimes. off. Sometimes. No, no. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, you have. Um, I just, uh, while you were talking about that, um, there was this part of this art. I mentioned earlier, you, you, you wrote some articles that I find really important and enlightening and uh, exciting, you know, to in, in that field. And somewhere there were this quote that it's much more important to, to appear confident, you know, than than saying what you don't know in order to sort of oh, make, yeah. it the, make it in the corporate world and yeah and then just the way it is isn't it so and uh, and i guess without yeah back to the first episode without an incentive structure that i think it's something that the incentive structures need to address and when you talked about back then you spoke about three blockers to to innovation and one of them was the funding structure so mm -hmm. that goes right back into it you know as long as you have a funding structure where you fund something from 
beginning to end or even for a period of time against a number, let's say, then it really comes down to how well can you present this number, doesn't it? How well can you present this case? Not how not how true, how how sincere, you know, in a sense. That's a that's a that's a very loaded word, but let's go with that for now. You know, mm. how, how sincere is, is is this case that you're making right now? And the only way to get there is as you just described through through ranges. Yeah, and I think you know something that you just said triggered triggered something. Mm. And the more I mean, I think about this just just from a human nature perspective, the more time, the more money, the more effort you put into something, the more you just naturally expect it to meet its expectations. So, you know, here we go all the way back to the start of the episode. So, you know, the problem with these funding models is, and it's just human nature, the bigger you batch your money, the more you're going to put effort into it. And the more there's going to be, you're going to be less willing to abandon it because you've spent all this money already. Uh, it's, you know, sunk cost fallacy. It's all, it's all embedded in human nature. So if we can combat these things by making smaller investments and reevaluating, then we can say it's way easier for most humans to say, ah, it was only for a bank anyway. It was only a hundred thousand dollars. So look at that. Not worth pursuing. Whew, good thing. We were going to spend 10 million on it. So you just saved us 9.9. But it doesn't it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> Because nobody gets promoted for that, right? There's no, again, there's no structure that says, well done, we calculated an ROI of 90 million. Yeah, Yeah, 9.9 million. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. so there, again, right? It's not, it's, it's not there. So how do you expect humans to behave in that way? Yeah, something's got to change. Yeah, I would like to touch on innovation accounting, Peter, if you don't mind. Such a good person to talk to about it. In a sense, I would like to get your take on what is innovation accounting, if that's fair, and then yeah, talk a bit about that. So, yeah, what is what is innovation accounting for you today? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's just kind of weird, even putting those two words together for for me. Like, there, there, you know, you got this word innovation, which is as we talk about, like new. Um, uncertain and then you know you you stick this word accounting beside it and all of a sudden it feels like you should be creating a ton of certainty because accountants create certainty don't they so now i think that's true as i think about innovation accounting but what i would rather call it is it um and, and, and look, the lean startup in and of itself creates de-risking, uh, and and you know thinking about how we turn a business model from full of assumptions to full of less assumptions, facts, whatever we wanted to call those other things that aren't assumptions. Um, you know, to me, innovation accounting is is right alongside that notion, but it is putting concrete numbers in play. So now that could be at the individual initiative level, 
And when I think about it that way, it's things like Monte Carlo, things like creating some predictability. Uh, again, can't predict the future at a point. We, we believe this, you and I. You can only predict the future uh, with a range and a probability of the real world of reality ending up in that range. So because we believe that, that is de-risking something. So going from a line that looks like a hockey stick and knowing, as you should know, that that's a lie, that you can't trust that at all, that's really risky. So now if I bring innovation accounting to that, the only thing that, that it can do, not the only thing, but I'd say the primary thing that it can do at the initiative level is really paint the picture of reality. And what reality is, as you go to predict the future, is a range of possibilities with a probability associated with it, period, full stop. So applying Monte Carlo, I think, is, is a really good way at the an individual initiative level to apply innovation accounting, de-risking the, you know, what is the reality of predicting the future? Now, uh, I, at the portfolio level, innovation accounting, I mean, I suppose if we take each individual initiative and we say, you know, let's take the Monte Carlo example and, and, and play that forward at a point in time for each of these initiatives, let's say there's three different things. Let's go to the bank again. Just as an example, one's a new type of mortgage, one's a credit card, one a new type of loan. Let's do it. And we want to say, well, which one of these three things should I invest in? Well, um, because we know that we can't predict the future at a point, instead, what we're going to do is probably end up with something that looks like a bit of a bell curve at the end of the day in terms of ranges of outcomes that occur that could occur in the future. Um, you know, most of the outcomes probably gathered around some average type of outcome and far fewer of them away from that average outcome. Uh, you know, assuming that, that that's how the actual real world works for this type of initiative, not to get into the statistics of it, but there, uh, that's, that's usually the safest assumption to make is that, that the thing that you're trying to model behaves like that bell curve that, that we're familiar with. That's the first way to, to, to kind of, get into modeling these types of uh, these types of single initiatives and each uncertain variable in that initiative unless you know for sure that that each of these variables must behave in that way so in other words you know it's either like a coin toss for example it's either one thing or another thing it's not gathered around some average like the height of people in a country so if you know that you're dealing with data that is different than gathering around an average, then you know that you've got to you've got to model it in a different way. But all that to say, let's say that we've got three different initiatives. They all have different kind of curves at a point in time in the future. Let's say two years in the future, four years in the future, whatever you want to model. Well, now we can start to kind of analyze shapes. So let's say one curve is um, is really uh, tight and it's tall. So what that means is, so if I paint on the x-axis, if I point paint, let's say dollars of of P and L, and probability on the y-axis, we can see if we've got something that's really tight. It means that I'm pretty certain 
to be within a, within a particular range of outcomes of dollars. And let's say I've got another one that's, that's flatter and it kind of goes like this up and it goes way down here. Well, although I'm nowhere near as certain about my outcomes, I do have some chances to make a lot of money because this kind of dips down over here and I've got at least some chance, a greater chance to make a bunch more money. And who knows what the third so, one. So let's say like. for the podcast listeners, um, a, a bell curve that is not very high, but very wide. Yeah, that's right. So now what we can start to do is say, well, what is our investment thesis? What's, what's our criteria at the end of the day? Do we like things that have a chance of making a bunch of money? Or do we want to be very certain about the amount of money we're going to make? Up to you. It's really how how you want your portfolio to operate. So if you want a bunch of things that are more certain, then you're gonna you're gonna you want more more of these things, and hopefully you're more of these things over here. But I, you know you like them um, certain, so wherever they are, they are. Yeah, so you can ignore the ones. So I just just trying to and, for folks who don't see right now. I'm just trying to bring them on board. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. Um, I'm pointing all over the screen. You, yeah. For those yeah, I'm translating. Who I'm translating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. See, this is I'm an Italian, so I tend to talk with my hands. So you know, I'm drawing while I'm speaking. Obviously, for those of you who can't see. Um, <clears throat> so, I think yeah, it, it really innovation accounting for me is about. Yes, numerically, because there, there's the word accounting that implies numbers. Um, you know, it implies ratios. It doesn't imply assumptions. You know, we're, we're going to need some raw numbers here. Um, but yet the word accounting, or sorry, the word innovation is this big uncertain thing. So how do you bring those two things together? Well, to me at the core, And one of the most useful methods you can use is Monte Carlo. So therefore you can, you can track initiative level. You can bring it to the portfolio level and you can start to make some decisions based on how you like to invest. Yeah. Nice. Good old innovation accounting has come a long way. huh? Yes. It's really, really. And I mean, really look, there's more to it than that. There, there are ratios that, that are out there. Um, you know, Dan, Dan Toma and Esther Gohan. Have, have written an excellent book called Innovation Accounting. I wrote the Monte Carlo section of chapter seven, I think. Uh, I can't remember what the chapter's called. Oh, there it is. Look at that. I think it's Shout chapter out. seven. Chapter um, seven, yes. How to, how uh, to I think, invest I think that's where single I am. initiatives. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly what it was. It's exactly what it was. And a lot of the stuff that we just talked about no. is uh, is in that chapter. How to value single initiatives. There you go. Chapter so what seven I said is measuring startup collaborations. Yes, but in part way through, um, I yeah, want to say yeah, it is there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it's going to be boring to listen to me going through this book right now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> flip, 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 flip. Yeah, uh, a lot of what we talked about is is uh, is in that chapter. Yeah, you also wrote, um, or back then it was at least called the Innovation Accounting is Dead, Long Live Innovation Accounting. You've written, yeah. which which touches on that, doesn't it? You you you. It does. 
you wrote the worst and the worst case and best worst case decision making, which yeah. is a fantastic article. Like they all kind of touch on important elements of of this. Why you suck at estimating and what to do about it is is brilliant and and touches on that. Um, another thing that I find also that I thought was fantastic equally stop guessing how risky your riskiest assumptions are right because yeah. back to the discussion earlier if if we say that very very important for innovation management is to make sure that folks learn the right thing at the right time uh -huh. and the right thing is usually the most uncertain thing right so we want to yeah. kind of understand okay. what is what poses the most risk in your model Yeah, how much uncertainty do you have left? You kind of want to remove that. It's it's a bit more tricky than that, but but very broadly speaking, it's it's the it's the most risky assumption or the riskiest assumption, the most uncertain assumption. Yeah. And so far, we had methods of doing so. Mm -hmm. The best one was probably is still assumption mapping, risk risk prioritization, yeah. a two by two, where we where we go two by two. Yep. Right? What is the most important thing for our for our business model? And mm -hmm. what is the most uncertain thing? And you know, that 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 defines the axes. And, and 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 usually in the top right corner, we end up with the most uncertain assumptions. We have other ways of really guessing. So when we fill out something like a business model canvas, a lean canvas, um, kind of we look at the these knowledge boxes, these these aspects of our of what needs to be true in order for this uh, for this venture to to be successful. And then kind of say, oh, this seems to be the most risky thing. This aspect of this knowledge block. Like, but please correct me. Yeah. And then uh, another very useful tool would be storyboarding, where you can kind of, again, understand how, what in this human behavior, what in the journey of what we want folks to do in the future seems very risky and uncertain. Right. And they, they, this seems to be, I think that's kind of it, unless I'm missing something. And with, What well, just as, yeah, go for it. I think the so, yeah, I think that the so because we can't predict the future at a point, and because the only way to predict the future is with a range with the probability of reality occurring in that range, what we can do is is pair all these wonderful methods that we've operated with as lean startup practitioners. You know the, the the good old two by two matrix, which any good management consultant worth their salt loves a two by two matrix. Um, we can certainly absolutely map your assumptions that way, but also take a look at the variables in your outcome formula: P and L, ROI, revenue, um, you know, impact, cost savings, whatever it is, and take a look at the variables across that whole formula and find the ones that have the widest range. Chances are that's another, well, not chances are, for sure you know less about those variables than the ones that have a very narrow range. So that's another lens on, on how big of an assumption you're making. Yeah, I, I, I would say it's a game changer. I think it's a game changer in innovation management. Sorry, like you know, I think it's modest. Yeah. To, it's it's kind of modest to say another. We need some qualitative lenses as well. It's hard to model. You know, mm -hmm. is this legal? What we're trying to do or not? 
Otherwise, it's an absolute fantastic game changer. And we say, hey, yeah, we're we're going after what is definitely very important. Like teams go after what is arguably very important if they inform these these variables that have such a such a wide that have such a big impact and and and, and little which uncertainty has such a big impact on on the future or on estimating yeah. the future. And I think it loops back really well to incentive structures and to yeah, because we can because this is a fantastic thing about that article. Sorry, I, I come back to that. I hope it's not too confusing. So, but the two by two, sure. you know, there's a sticky note somewhere, and that's the question you post in that article. Once you've learned something, where do you put now the sticky note? How much on what axis do you move this sticky note? And it's just the best question ever, right? It's so hard. Now, with a if you inform a range. And this is obviously for the listeners, not for you. <laughs> um, we we get new insights, we learn something, and we can usually narrow down this range of this variable, and it just like quantifies the impact of learning. And it's also one of the things that Eric, I think, said: How do we connect learning to money? Yeah, and it goes also a bit yeah. back to cost accounting and things like that. Anyway, I'll be too crazy right now. But it is arguably a game changer in in innovation yeah, management. I think that's that's true. The concept that I suppose I hadn't paid enough thought to, probably because it was sitting right in front of my face, was <laughs> is the fact that you know any uh, you can measure the percentage that you've reduced that range, and that is meaningful. That is Very a meaningful. meaningful um measurement of progress how much have you learned well i've reduced my range by 15 percent. there you go okay well that's not you know that's not a direct answer to the question but it's certainly not a completely indirect answer to the holy question. moly we made it it's not it was eight percent we had eight percent certainty of hitting five five million revenue in three years and now we have 12. yes i couldn't be more excited and when you think about, yeah, and we haven't set, talked about Douglas Hubbard, but uh, today, but you know, we, a lot of the inspiration comes from Douglas Hubbard, and in that book, he talks about the value yes, of information. For sure, we can absolutely we can say now, it was worth X to learn Y. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, it, it was worth it to reduce the uncertainty by this much. Yep, I'm a broken record if I report, sure. you know, if I continue saying how exciting this is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So is it, you know, to, to your point, if you you know put put assumptions on a two by two, or even if you've got, you know, a, a, a lean canvas or business model canvas, and you've got one color that's assumption and another color that's fact or whatever that thing that is not an assumption, um, you know, how quickly is it changing from one color to the other from assumption to fact, it could be a measurement that's useful, still a useful thing. Um, how many of these things are fact versus assumption across a bunch of different business models? Could you manage a portfolio that way? I suppose you could, but this is a more quantified way to do so. And we all know that large corporations love quantifying things and as they should, 
I mean, it's, it's so. expensive to get results. Yes, it's expensive to get results. Rightly so, hundred percent. Yeah. There's another. There's another concept that I wish, you know, I I uh, I could have found a way to uh, to put into this podcast, and it's, um, well, maybe we still can. Like one of the okay. things that I think, um you know, and the question would probably end up being like, why is, you know, there's business casing out there today, what's wrong with it? Um, and if I were to answer that question, um, and I, Tristan talks about this for sure, but the thing that I think hammers it home is, is this. So every single business case that I've seen in traditional organizations, every organization goes something like this. Um, here is, uh, here are a bunch of, you know, revenue numbers. Uh, here are a bunch of cost numbers. Now I'm going to net present value these things when they're in the future. So I bring them into today's dollars. Fantastic. That's what you should do. Um, but, and here's a plus minus on, uh, on all of these variables. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take I'm going to say, what's the worst case for every single one of these variables? Every single one of them. Let's say there's, I don't know, 40 different variables mm -hmm. in, in this formula. That at least, right? Like I've seen spreadsheets like you have that are many, many, many tabs long and many, many, many columns in them. Lots of different numbers. So now let's let's just pretend that there's 40. And then, of course, the same 40 variables, like what's the worst possible case scenario for all 40 of those? Okay, fine. So let's let's say that there are only six possible outcomes for each of those variables, all 40 of them. So I've got a six-sided dice, and I go put 40 sets of dice into a bucket, and I rattle them around, and I pour them out. What do you think the chances are? that all 40 of those dice hit six. Very low, right? Very low. So now you're telling me, here's the, uh, you know, I'm going to set all of these variables to the maximum that they can be. What's the best case scenario? Well, it's all sixes on dice. Now I'm going to put the dice back in the bucket again. I'm going to rattle it around and I'm going to chuck them out again. And I'm saying, oh, well, it, 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 yeah, it's all ones. Okay. Well, what are the chances that it's all going to be ones across 40 dice? Very, very, very low probability. But yet, here's what we do. We take uh, the maximum, we take the minimum, we add it together, seven, and we divide it by two. And all of a sudden, we think that that divided by two number is very likely to occur. You can't take two unlikely to occur numbers, divide them by two, and make that number likely. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah, that's we not can, how real life works. Very important, and and that's what you're describing, I think, in the worst case of the best worst case decision making article. Right? That's exactly. I think the probability is 0.3 percent, actually. To to. to that's right. That yeah, I think I did put it in there. Yeah. yeah, and that's from there, and I've been quoting that. And thank you. Something almost impossible, and something almost impossible, adding it together and dividing it by two. The simple fact of adding it together and dividing it by two doesn't all of a sudden make it really likely. There's no such mathematical operator for likelihood that does that. And this isn't one of them. So you can't take your best case and your worst case, 
add it together, divide it by two, and all of a sudden call that the likely case. It's just not reality. Okay, even though that and is that's standard in many organizations, that what standard that is very common. Hundred percent standard, hundred percent common practice, and it's incredibly misleading. Incredibly misleading. Okay. Thank you, Peter. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. This concludes part two of the episode with Peter Lepiani. You can find all relevant links to the topics we have covered and ways to connect with Peter in the show notes. Make sure not to miss any future episodes and subscribe to the Innovation Metrics podcast via your preferred platform. Lastly, please do us a favor and share this episode with someone or even a few people who might be interested. Thank you for listening and happy learning.